Alicia, uh, Cameron, it is a joy to speak to you. Thank you so much for the time. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, a year in film is okay. I want to say it's so much fun. I, I've actually been waiting for this series <laughs> because I feel like this is such a, a fascinating way to look at at the history of film. You know, we look at sort of the arcs and we look at themes of eras and whatnot, but to take a specific moments in time, I think is such an interesting idea. I'm wondering for you both, how did how did the series come to be? Uh, you know, I think that Hollywood Suite, we're uh, four movie channels, uh, so we're naturally kind of organized around the 70s, 80s, 90s, and kind of 2000 to modern. Uh, so we wanted something to suit each of our channels. Uh, so, you know, it immediately kind of took us to years. And then I think uh, Alicia also has a really great background in film history uh, and knowing a lot of, I think, especially how, like, very old film <laughs> affects modern film. Uh, she has a lot of that kind of interest. So I think once we started digging into the years, uh, it was, yeah, it, it just kind of, kind of made sense. Yeah. I think too, and it was interesting seeing, you know, if you look at the list of Academy Award nominations per year, it was so fascinating seeing like in the 70s and 80s, how many of those films no one remembers. And yet these other films that perhaps were not hits at the time, are our most beloved films of those decades. So I think a lot of what made the show fun and what made the show make sense based on our own branding is that mystery of like, what is that process? How do you go from box office dud, no one's watching it to one of the most iconic films in the 1980s. And then what's the process behind a film being so lauded that it's nominated for an Academy Award? Maybe it wins, maybe it doesn't, but then 40 years later, no one's heard of it. That is exactly like one of the key, I think is so fascinating because we, we almost define success in two different ways when it comes to a film. You, you, there's box office success and then there's awards success and there's films that will get those things and then are instantly disappear. Um, like the, the, I love that in the 20, in the 2010, you're talking about the King speech because yeah. That year, I remember, I remember the fight between the social network and King speech. And it was like, if you're cool, you fight for the social network. Yeah. If, if you're lame, you fight for, for King speech. And, uh, and even Spielberg, I remember Spielberg at the Oscars saying something to the effect of, you know, a film, whatever film wins will come under this category and whatever film loses will be in with this category, like Raging Bull and all these other yeah. films. And you're like, oh, I guess that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's where sometimes if I love a film and it's nominated for Best Picture, I don't want it to win. I think it can be a major disservice to that film. And we see this in a year in film all the time that the underdog tends to fare the best. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I also think it's interesting sometimes to look back on what, for instance, the King's speech, which I think became kind of a joke. And now even in our episode, we're all kind of like, you know what? It's not that bad. <laughs> like we, yeah, we all in our heads still have that, but it was also a massive box office success. It's like one of the last hugely grossing best pictures, uh, which is kind of fascinating too. Cause you, it, it like push come to shove. It is a costume drama, you know, it's uh it's not doing anything wild, but yeah. So it is interesting 
and that switches. And yeah, more often than not, I think the film that we and our experts love is not the best picture winner and sometimes even a box office failure. So so to you both, then what defines a film's legacy? Because you're absolutely right. Like we we can say these are the films that defined a year. And of those films, some of them are financial successes, some of them are, are awards, darling, some of them are neither. Um, but they are sort of these these tentpole moments. I, I love the conversation around Pee-wee's Big Adventure because what an insane movie that was. And I was a kid, I saw that movie in theaters. And I thought it was great. And my dad looked at me like I was like I was insane. Um, but it was such a sort of it 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 left a stamp. So what defines a legacy to you? I mean, I think to me, part of it is this kind of alchemy. Obviously, with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, part of it is the director going on. It's Tim Burton's debut movie. Uh, so that's a big deal. But I also think that there's this uh, availability legacy, partially. I mean, we're going to talk about, and I'm sure Alicia has a lot more to say about the peanut butter solution. And that one kind of for our generation is huge because it was given to every school, <laughs> you know, and played constantly in schools. So the availability of these movies is sometimes part of this legacy. Uh, we we also dive into movies like Tukey Buki, which probably weren't very big in their time, but have grown in legacy just due to innovation, the creative people behind the scenes, and then like a growing appreciation for how significant that film was. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Cam. Access is everything. I mean, a lot of very unsuccessful films at the box office were purchased cheaply by television stations. And so if you were a kid of the 80s and 90s, you saw certain films over and over and over again that were never meant to have that kind of afterlife. And those become highly, highly successful. Um, we don't talk about the show, but a great example is Clue, the movie Clue, yeah. box office bomb. But, you know, everyone rented it. Everyone watched it on TV. There's different endings. Um, and, you know, it, it, it just had this other life. So for me, with legacies and films, they just have to resonate throughout time and they can resonate differently. So a lot of films we talk about, whether it's Rocky Four or um, which was the same year as Rambo First Blood Part Two, two very over the top intense films that were, you know, critically hated. Um, mm. But we watch today because they're so, so iconically 80s. There's such a time capsule of the politics of 1985, what was going on with the Reagan era, what was going on with international politics with post-Vietnam. Uh, no one was talking about that stuff really when they came out. It, it would take a while. And I always love these films. Sometimes you see a film, you know, like recent films, and I'll think, I just can't wait until that gets to ferment and simmer for a decade and becomes a classic. Like that's, that's the process that I get most excited about. Cameron, you addressed the, the peanut butter solution. When, when we were, when I was reading through the list and the, and the clip come, or comes up, I remember thinking to myself, I thought, well, you know, I, that's, if this is such an iconic film, why don't I, I, I don't remember this film. Mm. And then I saw the clip in the episode and I'm like, oh my word, I saw that in class. Yeah. Everyone, it's um, nightmare fuel. Hollywood uh, <laughs> Sweet, this has been lovingly restored. Um, so we're premiering that restoration at the end of May. 
yeah, a lot of people don't know this film by title and then you show them a photograph and you can see it on their face, the existential terror. We <laughs> uh, living this very disturbing film. I never grew up with it. I never saw it. I saw it for the first time as an adult in a movie theater for sort of a cult uh, screening series. And I was with children. Parents brought their kids. Parents my age brought their children. <laughs> Huge mistake. The crying the like, you know, just like kids couldn't even breathe. They had to be, they had to leave the theater and you could <laughs> see their parents realize, oh, this wasn't my beloved childhood film. This was a film I remember well because it terrified me. It's yeah. a very good film. I think it says a lot about childhood um, and the real, you know, the real struggle of trauma and losing parents and death. And I don't think any kids film today would go there the way that Rock Demers did um, and Michael Rubo. So it was perfect for 1985 because, you know, a lot of people like you, uh, Steve, would look at the list, our interviewees and say, well, what is that film? And then like research it. And then we would get the rawest interviews from them about Almost like they were gonna cry. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say the the we we worked with a company and there's a Blu-ray of it as well, which features a, a a documentary. And the documentary highlights pretty much what you said that most people truly there's a few films that everyone thinks was a dream they had, <laughs> and this movie it just taps into something. And I think, like you say, Rock Demer he cared about how kids think, and for some weird reason he managed to like reach that lizard brain of a child in a movie at the time it was the um highest grossing english uh film out of quebec like it it did massive box office mm -hmm. and it's not just canadians who experienced this film this film was mm -hmm. experienced in north america there were huge sales in the united states um it's one of the only examples i can think of of like a homegrown canadian film you know that had that kind of reach um very famously there's a podcast how did this get made and they did the peanut butter solution on that um, and we have our own podcasting film with jay baruchel uh chiming in on his own trauma around this film uh, but that's just the magic of looking back through this lens of discovering these either hidden gems or films that we've forgotten that shouldn't be forgotten uh it's it's a really fun way to look at film history. Mm -hmm. Alicia, you, you said earlier, you made a, a great point about letting a film simmer. And I think as you talk about peanut butter solution, that's, this is a great example, but there's a lot of films like this whole, in many ways, this whole series is based around letting films simmer. And, and I think it's fascinating how we look back on these, these stories that defined us or defined an era. And I was just wondering for you both, like, what do you think the relationship is between uh, the history of movies and, and history? Like, because do we read things into a story 10, 15 years later that, that maybe wasn't intended at the time? Or, or are we getting more clarity as time goes on? It's a huge question. <laughs> I was going to say, this is like, yeah, your whole academic life. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's a mix. I, I don't think that there's ever really a problem because, you know, films end up being up to the audience. So if you read something into it that's not intended, too late, you know? You've, they've made the movie. It, it, it's done. I, I know, like, one thing, I, I, I don't know, my own ho hobby horse is, uh, like, the... <laughs> bit of a bummer, I apologize. The legacy of AIDS and a lot of people saying X or Y horror movie is, is an AIDS narrative. 
uh, I think a lot of people misunderstand the timeline of like when a person would intend to make that statement. Um, but at the same time, who cares? <laughs> if you want to say the thing is about AIDS, sure. If that means something to you, uh, that's it. And I, and I do think that when we're further away, that the lines blur and you start to see those interpretations. But I think that that's a good thing. And that's, um, that's why a movie, I, I think, like Alicia points out, uh, The Sting, you know, it's, it has all sorts of anachronisms in it because it's a very 70s movie about that time. But by my time, what do I know? If I'm not an expert in fashion, yeah, it just works to me. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all been at like a film festival screening or something where the director or writer is on stage and you get to that Q&A portion and there's always someone in the audience who has a really elaborate theory about what the film means or, you know, the hidden message and they'll, they'll go on and it's usually very cogent and I love that moment where the director or writer who whoever looks at the person and says like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> that happens all the time. Um, but, you know, it's, it's always 2020 vision, right? Like we look back at things and now we can know and read into a director's biography. We know if they were closeted in the 1950s, we know what was going on with the blacklist and how that kind of narrative would have been written into very classic Hollywood films. And for myself as a film critic, I can go back and read some of my criticism from five, 10 years ago. And I didn't know at the time I was writing it, what I was instilling, but I can look back and say, well, I was going through a really tough time, like 10 <laughs> years ago. And I read that review and I'm like, oh, I'm totally channeling that in there um, unintentionally. And I think that happens with films all of the time. There's unintentional messages that only, only will be brought out in time. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that comes up in this film, it's interesting because it can, I, I hear what you're both saying and it seems to go both ways because we have, for example, The Matrix and people talk about it now as a trans narrative. At the time, I mean, that, like, I remember sitting in the viewer, uh, if you had told me that in 1999, I would have said, are, are you insane? Like, I wouldn't have, I just wouldn't have yeah. seen it. And that's an interesting one. And I think that that's kind of the opposite thing where that's where now the filmmakers go like, yes, yeah. intended 100%. Like that's a fun one where it's like, yes, we had a secret meaning all along and we didn't promote it because we weren't in the space to be comfortable to talk about that. Uh, and yeah, it's kind of fascinating when you, and they don't necessarily go into the nitty gritty. All they say, the Wachowskis say is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Which is uh, very interesting. Yeah, I've wondered that about the artists as well. I wondered if, if like, like you were saying, Alicia, if they look back on it and say, "Well, I see, I see what I was dealing with at that time," and and this has maybe maybe I was working through some stuff, uh, and and we've seen that in in all sorts of films uh, over over the years, where when you look back at the history of an artist and say, "This is oh, this was going on in their life," and you can look at it and say, "Well, maybe there was something really going on," but. Woody Allen. I mean, yeah. we, that's a, maybe not a great example to bring up, but uh, yeah. I recently watched one of his films from the 70s where he is, his character, quote unquote, is, you know, dating a 15 year old girl or something like that. We now have 40 or 50 years of that history to kind of reflect on. It's really hard for me to watch those movies and not know what ha would happen 20 years later or 30 years later and think about that. It really, really tints. Um, how I can watch his filmography. Well, I mean, the the series addresses that too with American Beauty. Yeah, um, yeah. 
like uh, <laughs> how yeah. it's so complicated like and and maybe that's a, a follow up for this is what with what we know now how can like how does that affect our viewing of older films i i use i one example uh, we did a we did a podcast series for a couple of years uh, called Movies You Missed, where we had mm. friends of ours in our forties speaking with millennials, our young millennials, and right. saying, "Here's some films you didn't grow up with and whatnot." And it was fascinating because they would say, "My goodness, that is so racist!" Like this, and I'm, mm. like, I grew up with that, like Gremlins, and they're like, "This was yeah. a classic," and they're like, "I can't, I can't watch this." Um, how how does our present reality affect our viewing? Oh, I mean, I think it's pretty constant. And I think one of the things that's good about this series is also sometimes we're exposing, you know, that uh, due to my age or my background or whatever, I've developed a bias against a movie that's undeserved. You know, I, I think uh, one we go back to, I think because it's so heavily um, tied to the baby boomers. And it's like since Gen X, people have been eye rolling at American Graffiti. Because it's like, oh yeah, I get it. You know, boomer nostalgia, you know, going to Fuddruckers or whatever, like any of those jukebox Marilyn Monroe thing. But when you watch that movie and you're like, oh no, this is just like a universal movie about teenagers that is very affecting. But it's so hard to remove its success um, from that and from that generation. But I also do think, I mean, one of the things we're pretty committed to at Hollywood Suite is you know, presenting these movies as they were. Sometimes we'll have a disclaimer to say, like, you know, if you're not ready for this. Uh, but yeah, it is the the biases. And it's the interesting thing I would say is they're still there. Like it, the movies nowadays, all you do when you go through this history is know that it, it's just going to keep happening. Things keep changing. Um, and yeah, it, it's, I don't know. It, it is interesting because I don't. I don't think I've ever really went into a like completely unwatchable movie, but uh, some some became a little hairy to tangle with for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering if there are films in here that you would say of these ones. Let's let's focus on these ones because there could be a, mm -hmm. too big that you would say sort of resonate with you personally more than other ones like a film that that defines your year if you will hmm. Hmm. man uh now i'm trying to think of like what my favorite uh <laughs> oh i i definitely have one for the 2010 episode um you know taiko ytt's boy was such a revelation um you know, seeing that when it came out in 2010, I think I didn't, I don't think it hit Canada until 2011, to be honest. It was the highest grossing film in New Zealand. Uh, it beat the box office record for Jurassic Park. Like it was such a phenomenon. And then, you know, I'd never heard of that filmmaker. Like I think I'd seen Eagle versus Shark. Um, it was a film that touched me so deeply. Um, and then now we know like that, that's Taika Waititi, one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know it really is just this coming of age story about a, a, two Maori brothers with a very um, absentee problematic father played by Taika it's such a such a hard-hitting yet gentle comedy that I'm just so happy we got to highlight it it's been on Hollywood Sweep for a while it comes and goes um, and I'm so happy we got to highlight it because it, it deserves it. And I think people watch it now because they're really obsessed with Taika and his work for Marvel and Star Wars and whatnot. 
So there's this small little film that probably got a one week run in Canada in movie theaters that gets to be beside the social network and Inception and True Grit. Um, that, that's something I'm really happy about in that particular episode. Yeah, I, I think kind of along the same lines of a, a small one that now seems so significant, but also in the changing realm of filmmaking, it, to me, it's blood simple. Um, I think, you know, as somebody with a background in filmmaking, very inspired by like the indie filmmakers of the 80s and 90s. It's just such a good story, you know, that the Coen brothers, you know, went around to dentists they knew and, and, and had a good trailer starring Bruce Campbell that they kind of, you know, showed people and slowly kind of built up this movie. And it's a movie that is made with cheapness in mind, but also they're like, you know, if we can make it stylish, we can have good actors, uh, we can make something really special. And you see so much of what they do. I mean, it's obviously interesting in the Coen's way, but I think it's also you know, it's it's kind of bittersweet because you're seeing this time where that was a possibility of a launching point. And I do still think people make movies like that, uh, but I just think, you know, they end up on Tubi or something or at some tiny film festival that people don't see. And I kind of, yeah, have a nostalgia for a time where this word of mouth about a, a great-looking, hyper-independent, micro-budget movie uh, could lead to like three four five you know barry sonnenfeld shot it francis mcdormand is one of her first movies it's like this launched so many careers out of virtually nothing yeah yeah it's funny when you get those opportunities you look back on those things and you say wait that's where they started oh my goodness yeah. um i we're running out of time i'm just wondering for you both what do you hope that the audience takes away from uh, a year in movies I mean, to me, I just want I want people to watch the movies. I want people to get excited about watching old movies. Uh, you know, if you're watching along starting on May 25th, there's a, a couple premieres after every episode, you know. So if you watch 1973, you can watch Paper Moon and Coffee right after um, and a bunch more on demand. And I think that that's that's kind of the point of the series is like. With this lens, you know, you can look back at almost any movie and find something interesting and enjoyable. So I think it just get hope to get people excited about watching old movies. Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, we're inundated with content and it's not always great content currently the way that the studios are operating and um, what we're kind of being delivered, especially with possibly a strike that's about to happen, is happening, will majorly disrupt um delivery of film so just watching older film like it, there's so much to discover there's so many gems there that haven't gotten their day yet um so just discovering i think what is it 100 and 125 years of film um there's a lot to mine i appreciate that and i appreciate the time thank you so much for for chatting with me i really appreciate it the series is so much fun i loved it um and i wish you both the best all right thanks, thanks a much. lot great thanks so much. have a great day Good. Okay. Yeah, you thank you, you too thanks, thanks cameron bye